you would turn with me, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John, chapter 10. Last month, we began studying this chapter uh, with a message uh, title of Caring for the Sheep. And so we continue with that uh, this week. Uh, Jesus here uh, makes two I am statements. Uh, John records a number of them in his gospel. Uh, He says, I am the door of the sheep. And he also says uh, in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Uh, So verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And uh, so what Jesus is doing in the opening part of this chapter especially is he is using uh, these figures of speech, a parable uh, of a shepherd and his sheep. And we noted last time that there are a number of other characters uh, that are mentioned in the parables. Uh, thieves and robbers and a doorkeeper and a stranger, wolves and hirelings, hired hands and so on. And as I've thought on these things, um, it seems to me that the Lord's purpose in these, uh, this parable or these parables, these different illustrations, is not so much to tell us something about the other characters. They are there and their chief purpose, I believe, in being there in the parables is to point us by way of contrast to the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself is the only one who is identified in as far as the characters of the illustrations. He is the only one that is identified. And so as we think of the thieves and robbers, for example, uh, it's not so much that we need to wonder who are the thieves and robbers as we are to consider what we're told about them and realize how different Jesus is. Okay, so in other words, we learn something about Jesus even as the contrast of these other characters, though they are not identified and though they really need not be identified, the benefit of having them in the illustration is it enhances our understanding of who he is, right? Because he's not the way they are, right? Uh, so keep that in mind as we uh, step our way through these. Uh, we noted last time that in verses 1 through 5, uh, Jesus gives this general uh, parable, um, and doesn't really identify any of the characters in that parable. And at at the end of that, in verse 6, we're told that the people to whom he was speaking didn't understand the things that he was saying. And so he says to them again, um, continuing the illustration of shepherd and sheep and so on, but fleshing it out a little bit and including uh, the identification of himself. Right? And so there are two following parables, the door of the sheep uh, illustration, and then starting at verse 11, the good shepherd illustration. 
And Jesus identifies himself in both of those uh, figures of speech. Verse 7, I am the door. And um, in connection with that, he identified the benefits to those who enter by him. Uh, Those benefits, uh, verse 9, salvation, he shall be saved. Uh, Also, Sorry, lost. There we go. Uh, liberty, he shall go in and out. Right. So there's a, a, a testimony of liberty, and then he shall find pastures. So this nourishment and sustenance idea uh, that is uh, testified to there. So those are benefits to those who enter by him. Uh, he contrasts that with the purpose of the thieves and robbers. And the purpose of thieves and robbers um, are to, verse 10, steal, to kill, and to destroy. So think of that in contrast with his own purpose. Again, verse 10, I am come in order that they who enter in through the door might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Okay, so you contrast uh, stealing, killing, destroying with life and more abundantly. Right? And so it serves to really underscore uh, that which this person, this door uh, provides for those who will enter in by faith. And then in verse 11, uh, we begin a section uh, with this second figure of speech, I am the good shepherd. He says that again in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. And so really 14, sorry, verse 11 through 18 uh, makes this one unit where he's explaining uh, and really uh, enhancing this illustration of himself being the good shepherd. So that's what we're going to focus our attention on this morning. Let's begin by reading Uh, from verse 11 on down uh, to verse 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he is an hireling and cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received 
of my Father. So really a wonderful passage that is set before us here, and I trust that it will really very much encourage your heart if you are one of his sheep already, and if you are not yet one of his sheep. Oh, that you would understand the benefits that fall to those who would have a shepherd such as this. Uh, So may you hear the good news of the good shepherd and repent of your sin and call upon his name. He would save you. Uh, He promises to do so. Even later in this chapter, uh, he says, uh, where is it, 30? I lost it. Anyway, he talks about those that come unto him Uh, he will in no wise cast out. That may actually be chapter 8. I'm confused. Anyway, uh, those that come to him, he will in no wise uh, cast out. So we thank the Lord for a shepherd such as this, a savior uh, such as this. Now, uh, in setting forth this illustration, this figure of speech, Jesus is explicitly identifying himself as the good shepherd. Uh, The term uh, good shepherd or the phrase good shepherd is in this uh, account contrasted. Notice verse 12, but, okay, so there's a word of contrast. The good shepherd is being contrasted with an hireling. And uh, so he is going to emphasize that contrast throughout uh, this section. We are told by Jesus in introducing himself as the good shepherd, this in verse 11, that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He is going to come back to that and really elaborate on that starting at verse 14. But before he does so, he contrasts himself as the good shepherd, the one who gives his life for the sheep, with this hireling. And in telling us uh, the description of the hireling, what we find is rather than giving his life, the hireling seeks to protect his life. Uh, The hireling here is first of all described as not the shepherd, uh, verse 12. Uh, We're also reminded that the sheep are not his. I mean, since he's not the shepherd, he doesn't own the sheep. The sheep are not his. They do not belong to him. And not only that, but although he sees the wolf coming, And obviously perceives the danger. How do we know that he perceives the danger? Well, he flees, right? Uh, So he obviously perceives the danger in the wolf coming. But what he does instead is he leaves the sheep and flees. So he seeks to protect himself. He's seeking to protect his own life. And so again, that serves by way of contrast to the good shepherd who lays down his life. For the sheep. Here you have this hireling uh, when the danger is present rather than stepping forward 
to be in a position to save and to protect the sheep, uh, he's fleeing. Uh, He's going away from the trouble, leaving the sheep to the wolf. And of course, the wolf is described here as catching them and scattering them. And the idea is, of course, uh, not graphically put, but you can imagine, right, uh, what the wolf would do to the sheep. And it's interesting that as he comes to the close of the description of the hireling, we are given reason as to why the hireling flees. Verse 13, the hireling flees because he is an hireling, not a shepherd, not an owner of the sheep, and he doesn't care for the sheep. So again, that is that is emphasizing something. The contrast is supposed to emphasize something for us when we come to consider the good shepherd. The good shepherd is not at all like that. He is the shepherd and he does care for the sheep. All right. So uh, by setting the contrast of this hireling who facing the danger and of course, you know, there was possibility of danger to the shepherd any time he would face a, a, a wild animal like that. Uh, we do have the Bible record of David uh, testifying that as he tended his father's sheep, that uh, he actually faced a lion, he faced a bear, uh, and he stepped forward and defended Uh, the sheep and God was gracious to him and protected him. But I'm sure there were shepherds who uh, weren't so uh, skillful or weren't so fortunate or whatever and themselves were damaged uh, in protecting the sheep. And so this hireling is pictured as one who uh, does not protect the sheep and the reason he does not is that he does not care. Right? He cares not for the sheep. And so Jesus then comes back to the testimony about himself. And now we are going to get a further elaboration on that. So all of that is against the contrast presented by this hireling whose interest is self. Right? Whose interest is self-preservation. Whose interest is personal well-being and protection. There is no interest outside of himself for these sheep. He does not care. So against that uh, backdrop, we have Jesus now stepping forward with this further elaboration about his own testimony. Verse 14, he says again, I am the good shepherd. And that word shepherd has built into it a relationship with something outside of himself. I could say, personally, I, Paul Johnson could say, I am a good shepherd. Um, but I don't have any sheep, right? So that really isn't a true statement. So for Jesus to truly say, I am a, the good shepherd, implies that he has sheep and implies that he has a relationship with those sheep. And that's, in fact, what he then states. I know my sheep. 
And if you're using a King James Version that italicizes words that the translators have supplied, you will notice that the word sheep is in italics. So literally, the statement is, I am the good shepherd and know mine. I know mine. Now, obviously, in context, he's talking about his sheep, but it's, it's that idea. It is really emphasizing that they are his. I know mine, he says. And, uh, but it's also reciprocated and am known of mine. So he knows those that are his and those that are his know him. And so by this statement, uh, he's testifying that this is a reciprocal, goes both directions, personal relationship with, with each party having personal knowledge of the other. And again, the Bible everywhere testifies to that. Biblical Christianity is not a religion primarily. It's a relationship. And it has been from day one, day six actually, when human beings were made. Right? Even in the book of Genesis, you have the testimony before sin marred the relationship. You have God walking with the man and the woman in the garden, fellowshipping, communing, talking, uh, sharing life with them in the garden. And sin, of course, enters and separated between man and God. And that separation would have been eternal. Had God not intervened to bridge the gap, right? to provide a means for reconciliation. And that's what Jesus' testimony here has everything to do with. Right? He is the good shepherd and he knows his and his know him. There is this relationship and everything that that good shepherd is doing and has done is to promote that relationship with his sheep. Right? To make it possible in the first place and then to see it enriched as time passes. So there is this personal relationship. And lest we should think that this is a small thing. He uses an even as to put alongside of the relationship that he has with his sheep. Okay, I know mine, mine know me, even as, next verse, The Father knows me, and I know the Father. Folks, this is not a small thing. Think of the relationship between the members of the Godhead. A relationship that is eternal, right? save for that very dark hour 
when on the cross the Son was forsaken of the Father. And again, that hour because of what the Son was doing for the sheep. But other than that, one dark hour, and I don't mean one you know, uh, 60 minute period, that, that time, that one dark time, that relationship between Father and Son has been eternal. The closest possible relationship. They are one. They're separate persons, but they're one. They have one heart. They have one will. They have one mind. There is never any shade of disagreement between them. Never. Right? Closest possible relationship. That is put alongside his relationship with his sheep. Now, obviously, the relationship that he has with his sheep is not quite that close. Yet. The problem is not him. The problem is not the shepherd. The problem is the sheep. Right? And what does Isaiah say? All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Right. That's the problem. The sheep are the problem in the relationship. You know, the weak link in the relationship is not the shepherd, it's the sheep. But in setting his relationship with his father next to or parallel to his relationship with the sheep, he is trying to emphasize to us in his mind the importance of his relationship with us as his sheep. Right. This is not a small thing. This is a big thing for him, right? In fact, his whole purpose in coming to earth, his whole purpose, as he'll say in just a minute, of laying down his life, was so that the sin that separates between us and our God might be dealt with, right? Might be washed away so that we might have fellowship with him. Keep your finger here. And turn to 1 John chapter 1. And I would speak to his sheep this morning and I would urge you to, to think upon the relationship that you are privileged to have with the one who is life eternal, with God himself. Think on the relationship that you are privileged to have. Put all of this life and its joys and sorrows, right? its blessings and difficulties, put all of it in perspective of the privilege that you have to have fellowship with this God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life testifies an eyewitness to his human life. For that life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father. And it's so interesting that even here you have implied that relationship with the Father. He was with the Father and he was manifested unto us. 
That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you why? That you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so it is the intention of the good shepherd to provide for this kind of knowing between himself and his sheep and his sheep and himself. right? Even similar to, never will be exactly, but similar to the relationship between himself and his father. Right? And so here, the good shepherd has a personal relationship with his sheep. That's the first point that he testifies to in this section. Jesus has a personal relationship with his sheep. By setting these relationships in parallel, that is, his relationship with his sheep and his relationship with his father, by setting these <coughs> relationships <coughs> In parallel, Jesus is testifying to a close, loving, caring, personal relationship with his own. How close, you might ask. How loving, you might ask. How caring, you might ask. Well, notice verse 15 as the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, setting that relationship parallel to that with his sheep, verse 14. And, verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. How much does he care? How much does he love? Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. So, verse 11, he introduced the idea that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Verse 15, he restates it, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus will <clears throat> lay down his life. And again, think the contrast to the hireling. The hireling leaves the sheep and flees. No laying down of his life. The good shepherd lays down his life. And again, notice both times in verse 11, and in verse 15, this laying down of his life is for 
the sheep. In other words, it is for the benefit of the sheep. It's as he said in verse 10 in stating his purpose there. I am come that they might have life. But if he doesn't lay down his life, they won't have life. They will only have death. Why? Because, like sheep, they've gone astray. They've turned everyone to his own way. Right? They've sinned. They've broken God's commands again and again and again. They are deserving of death. They have earned it. They have well earned it. Let me say it that way. They have well earned it. There's no question but that they've earned it. And so if he will not lay down his in their place, if he will not lay down his life in their place, the wolf's got them, my friends. There is no hope. There's no other shepherd. There's no one else to provide. The hirelings all run. Right? The hirelings don't care for the sheep. Nobody cares for the sheep. But the shepherd. And so <clears throat> Jesus laying down of his life is what makes life possible for the sheep. This passage, of course, does not go into all of the theological explanation of that. It's using the illustration of the shepherd. So think wolf. Here's wolf coming. If the shepherd doesn't go out and face the wolf, if the shepherd doesn't go out at risk of his own life, just to use the illustration, right? If the shepherd doesn't face the wolf, the wolf's got the sheep. Right? This is what is needed. If the sheep are going to live, the shepherd has to face the wolf. If the sheep are going to have life, the shepherd is going to have to stand between them and death. And that is, of course, what he does. Now, he is going to elaborate on that yet further. But before he does, he's got another thing to tell us. Uh, and that is a very rich blessing to all of us in this room. So, I am the good shepherd. Again, verse 14, he has a personal relationship with his sheep. And he lays down his life as a testimony to the quantum of his care, the measure of his care. But verse 16, he says, other sheep I have. And really the only thing that we're told about them is that they are not of this fold. And uh, so what we understand is because in other places he uh, gave instruction um, in uh, 
sending forth his disciples, for example, in their ministry, um, he was he told them, for example, Matthew chapter ten, verse five, uh, these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, "Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." And, of course, when the Syrophoenician woman, when he's up in uh, Sidon or Tyre and Sidon in that area, uh, the Syrophoenician woman is pleading that he would cast the demon out of her daughter. And he initially just kind of puts her off and says, you know, I'm sent to the lost sheep of Israel. I'm sent to Israel. And, of course, he gave the talk about it's not meat to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And she uh, had her great response there. So this fold is Israel. This fold is the lost sheep of Israel. So when he says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, he's talking about Gentiles. That would include me and probably most, if not all of us in this room, right? So the shepherd is saying, I have other sheep, they are not of this fold, them also I must bring. Now, the fact that he has said he has other sheep implies that he has the same personal relationship with them, or will have, as he has just described. These other sheep, not being of this fold, are not of the Jewish people, as I've already mentioned. But Jesus, in saying, them also I must bring, is he has this sense of obligation to bring them to. Right? This is not optional in his mind. Uh, this is a must. Uh, and so he uh, sees that as part of his responsibility. Right? And so this shepherd... Uh, is concerned for all of his sheep, not just those who are physical descendants of Israel uh, or Jacob. He also says that they, verse 16, middle of the verse, they shall hear my voice. And you may recall a month ago that I was emphasizing that in those first sections of the chapter, this emphasis on his voice and calling them by name and the sheep hearing his voice and following him. Right. So he's saying the same thing about uh, the Gentiles that would follow. They shall hear my voice. And then he testifies that there will be one fold and one shepherd. The shepherd, of course, is him. And the one fold is uh, the gathering together of Jew and Gentile. Thus, this anticipates a bringing together of Jew and Gentile under Christ, the one shepherd. And keep your finger here in John, but turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Here, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church at Ephesus, which would have primarily been Gentile, not exclusively, but primarily Gentile. And notice what he says, starting in verse 11. Wherefore, remember that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, 
who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. And again, emphasizing the Jewish uh, covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham that required physical circumcision uh, by Abraham and his uh, male descendants. So here Paul is writing to Gentiles. He says in verse 12 that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, or to use Jesus' testimony from John 10, in the Good Shepherd, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of the Good Shepherd. Right? The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, for all of the sheep. Jew and Gentile. Uh, Verse 14, For he is our peace, who has made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Right. So it's very uh, significant that here it is the cross that is the thing that provides for the reconciliation. You see that? That he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, right? So when the good shepherd is is talking about the laying down of his life for the sheep, that is absolutely necessary. That is the means by which they become sheep, by which the two, uh, the other sheep are added to the one fold. It's the cross that does that. It's the blood of the cross, uh, the, the death of the shepherd, Uh, That makes that possible. Verse 17, And came and preached peace to you that were afar off, and preached peace to them that were nigh. So he's got that same invitation to be reconciled to God, to Jew and Gentile. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows up into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation, a dwelling of God through the Spirit. So this picture of one fold And it contains sheep that are either Jew or Gentile, no matter. It's one fold and one shepherd right? that he is uh, emphasizing. Now, I want to take, uh, it's not really a rabbit trail, (laughs) um, but I do want to just very briefly speak to 
the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Um, and again, not to elaborate on it in any sense really at all, but just to make one point. Yes, there is one fold. He is made to one in Christ. We are reconciled to God through his blood. And actually, in a sense, all of the Old Testament believers, Abraham, David, Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of those Old Testament believers, it's the blood of the cross that was the provision for their sin too. Right? They were believing the promises of God, but in anticipation of looking forward to that ultimate sacrifice. They are participating since the law of Moses in these animal sacrifices, animal sacrifices every year, reminder of the day of atonement and so on. You know, conscious that, you know, this really isn't dealing with our sin once and for all, but pointing forward to the sacrifice of Christ. Um, and so there are these aspects in which there is no distinction. Um, but it's not to say that in our understanding of all of Scripture that the distinction is utterly obliterated. In other words, there are some promises that God has made to Israel as a nation that still stand as promises to Israel as a nation distinct from the Gentiles. Okay, It's not to in any way minimize the work of the shepherd, right? Or the gathering together in one in him, right? Without the shedding of his blood, nobody would be saved. Old Testament, New Testament, Jew, Gentile, nobody would be saved. And so, yes, that one shepherd has provided for all mankind, Jew and Gentile. Uh, and so, in one sense, there is no distinction in our justification. Turn with me to Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3. And notice verse 26 for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Right? So some people might see, see, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Right? The distinction is utterly taken away between Jew and Greek. And I would say true insofar as the point of the passage is concerned, which is, justification. Look back at verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, Gentiles, through faith, 
preached before the good news unto Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. And of course, then he goes on and elaborates that that promise is to seed singular, and that means it's fulfilled in Christ singular, and so on. And so the point that if you're in Christ by faith, those promises are yours. But the the emphasis of the passage is justification. No distinction, Jew and Greek, right? Now, folks, really, listen. Verse 28 is not saying that the distinction between Jew and Gentile is utterly obliterated. If it were, then it's also saying that the distinction between male and female is utterly obliterated. Right? Because that's what comes later in the verse. Okay? So that's not what the Bible teaches. Right? The Bible continues to teach, okay, if you're a man, if you're a husband, here are your responsibilities. If you're a wife, here are your responsibilities. There's still a distinction. Right? But when it comes to justification, a man is justified exactly the same way a woman is justified. No distinction. A Jew is justified same way a Gentile is justified. No distinction. Okay, so... So when Jesus says there's going to be one fold from the standpoint of justification, yes. Okay. From the standpoint of all of God's promises, we need to leave them stand as they are. Some are made to Gentiles. Some are made to Jews. right? And we need to let that stand. One other passage that is often turned to, Colossians chapter 3. Let's note that. Colossians 3. And here you have, uh, notice verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Right. So again, you got that no Greek, no Jew, no circumcision, no uncircumcision. But what is this talking about? Well, I'll go back to verse 9. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, or to use the language from John 10, as the sheep. Put on, uh, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. What's the passage talking about? Sanctification. Right? That's what it's talking about. Putting off the old man, putting on the new man. You know, conforming ourselves to the image of Christ. Right? So when it comes to sanctification, just as it was with justification, no difference, Jew or Greek. No difference, Jew or Gentile. We are onefold. We have one shepherd, right? And his work in us is to be the same. But that is not to say that any distinction through the whole of the Bible between Jew and Gentile is to be removed in our thinking. That is not what those passages are teaching. Okay? So that was just a little aside uh, because it 
um, it puts some boundaries for our thinking when Jesus here in John 10 says that there shall be one fold and one shepherd. All right, so I did want to emphasize that. So let's come back then uh, to John chapter 10. So he has identified himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd has a personal, caring, loving relationship with his sheep. He knows his sheep. His sheep know him. Just like the father knows the son and the son knows the father. The measure of his care is that he's going to lay down his life for the sheep. Necessary if they are going to have life. But then notice what he says in verse 17. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life. And verse 18, he'll say, this commandment have I received of my father. Right. So the father has commanded him to do something. What has the father commanded him to do? to lay down his life. The father loves him because he's obeying. He is going to lay down his life. Right? Now, the father's love for the son is not only for this cause, obviously, but it includes this cause that He lays down his life. But it's interesting how Jesus puts this in verse 17. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life. Sentence doesn't stop there. There's a that or in order that I might take it again. Jesus laying down of his life is not the end. It is not the final objective. It is a means to the end. He lays down his life in order that he might take it again. Folks, listen. The Father's objective in issuing this command to his Son, the Father's objective was not to destroy his son by his death. The father's objective was that his son would destroy death by his resurrection from the dead. But in order for him to be raised from the dead, he's got to die. right? And of course, the dying is there because that's the wages, that's the penalty for sin. Not that the son, not that the good shepherd sin. No, he's good. He's the good shepherd. right? It, he's not dying for his own sin. He's dying for our sin. But the very fact that he's dying gives him the possibility to be raised from the dead. right? And in so doing, he destroys death. He triumphs over death. And so he says that this work of his, this is the good shepherd's willing 
work. Verse 18, no man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. It is his willing work. He lays it down of his own initiative. He says, I have power. That's the Greek word exousia. It has the idea of authority. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Right? This is his willing work. But even as verse 18 closes, this commandment have I received of my father. This is also the good shepherd's obedient work. He had received commandment to do the same from his father. Why? Because that was necessary in order to provide salvation for his sheep. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Folks, that is, I mean, the son's, the shepherd's obedient work to lay down his life and take it up again was the means of providing eternal salvation for us. Without it, there would be no salvation. Without it, there would only be death. And so the son, the good shepherd, cares for his sheep. He didn't do that for himself, except to have the privilege of gathering to himself many brethren, many sheep. He's doing it for us. He's doing it because he cares. He's doing it because he loves us. And so... The Godhead involved, the Father commanding, the Son willing and obedient to that command, doing the work that provides for our salvation. And as we come to this table, that work is what we're remembering. Think, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. That's what we are remembering today. And so with that, let us remember and let us give great thanks that we have such such a shepherd that cares for us enough to face the wolf, to lay down his life, to destroy death by his dying and resurrection.